Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And so, you go first today. Okay, I can go first. Um, so what is astonishing me this week um, is really, I really have two things I'm astonished about, and then I'll... I'll um, riff on your thinking about too, but... Um, just sort of two things that are deeply holy to me that have happened in the past two weeks. Um, one is two Saturdays ago, we gathered outside on our outdoor campus of the Grove and we had a women's retreat. Um, and it was just a chance because this community is so beautiful, right? And that's what I want to keep naming um, because I think people need to know when they're thinking about all the sacrifices they have to make in order to become a multi-ethnic community and when they're looking at it kind of as an abstract absolute like this is what we should be and that's all true um, but I think it's really important to know that um, there it's not just about it's not a punishment and it's not a test it is um it's a good thing for everyone. And this community that we are so blessed to be a part of, um, purely by the graciousness of God, um, it's just such, it's so beautiful. And because of coronavirus, like, obviously we haven't had enough time to be together in person over these past years. And um, and so we, we had hoped that, by November of this year, you know, back in May, we thought like, oh, by November of 2021, we might be able to go away together on a retreat as we have done in the past, staying at somebody's house. Um, and, and it became clear, obviously, that that was not going to be possible. And we thought, well, just because we can't do what we have typically aspired to do, um, we can still gather and we can still set time apart to have um, a community building relationship making um, time together that is centered in Jesus, right? And um, again, the the weakness that turns out to be the great strength of multi-ethnic Christian community is there is no low-hanging relational fruit, right? Um, you really, you have to dig deeper to build relationships based on what is really eternal, which is our shared faith and our shared struggle and our shared, um, you know, path to, to understand who God is and to embody our belovedness, not because of what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and trying to surrender and be vulnerable to the kingdom of God, which is in our midst and, um, let God form us instead of submitting our plans to God and trying to make God prosper them anyway. So, so we're thinking, well, we can't go away together, but we can gather outdoors on our campus safely. And, um, this isn't a chance to learn more. Um, it is not a knowledge gathering 
experience. It's a, um, it's a community building experience. And so, um, I, I was helped by a, a friend of mine who's like, you know, when you're a preacher, that's like, you're a hammer and everything's a nail. And so I can't help, but when we think about retreats, I'm like, okay, well I'll do a teaching series. <laughs> yeah. Cause people don't hear enough of me. Um, and I was talking to a really, really wise friend of mine named Lindsay, who's also a pastor, who's just really, um, thoughtful and gifted about spiritual formation, which is duh, the actual point of pastoring people is not to give them more knowledge or more information or allow them to win biblical arguments. Um, it's spiritual formation. That Everything that point. we do is about making disciples and coming alive in Christ. And so she really um, gently encouraged me to reconceive of what a retreat would be when I was saying like, I wanted to do it, but I was overwhelmed at the idea of coming up with like all these content sessions. And she's like, well, what if it wasn't about people listening to you? <laughs> what if it was about people having a shared experience together? And I was Imagine. like, I know, right? Imagine. She's a good friend, right? Um, and so um, we, we looked at this model of having kind of four activities that then people could sort of cycle through and do them together and have an opportunity to meet someone or, or like reseed a friendship or grow or seed a friendship based on a spiritual experience and having kind of four different types of ways that people connect to their faith. So by creating, by serving, by praying, by having a, you know, a a conversation together. And then another like, duh, aha moment. Um, I think we, we talk a lot about this privately, but I'm not sure it makes it onto the podcast about how sometimes like as this pastor in the model that we like to think about as being a servant leader. And so we, we want to serve, like it's, we, we want to, and also we feel this sense of responsibility and we want to and we feel so grateful for the privilege of our congregation supporting us so that this can be our income generating job for our families that we, we want to lift burdens from other people. And sometimes we do that too much. And so we have people who are in our communities who are frankly wiser and more mature and more talented than we are. And while on the one hand, you don't want people to feel like they have to show up and work another job. But on the other hand, people have gifts to give and they want to give them and they want to contribute in meaningful ways. And it's finding that balance. Right. And so again, my friend Lindsay was like, you know, there are a lot of amazing women in your community. And so instead of thinking about you doing it for them, how about if you reconceive of like giving people opportunities to um, share their gifts with their community and people don't leave connected to you, which they already are, but connected to these other Again, like I'm not being, this is not a rhetorical strategy to these other women who are deeper than me and I, and I mean it. And so anyway, so you, you walk that out in faith and, and you go to these women who, who are all, you know, carrying a lot of burdens and are laboring and dealing with challenges and saying like, Hey, would you be interested in helping, you know, lead this part and getting a yes, 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 yes. Because this isn't, as we say, watch your pronouns. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not even our church. It's God's church, but God is sending people to labor in the vineyard. So you, so anyway, it, it, it was this really beautiful 
day where we had four women, um, some of whom had been members of the community for a long time, some of one of whom was really a, a new member of the community who came and created um, just these activities um, so that they could share a place of maturity and passion with the women and, and talked about how, hey, we're, we're really different. Um, and so we connect to God in really different ways. And so of these four activities, one of, or two of them might be like your favorite and one of them might be like your least favorite. And it's okay if not everything is your favorite. Like something might not be for you. It might be for your neighbor. And and rejoicing in that and participating in that with openness and humility makes it for you, right? Um, to and, and so, it, but it was just really, really beautiful. And also I think it was like one of my primary experiences in ministry, or I just had this, this is not common for me, but I, I had this vision experience with God one day, like years ago, in the, like the real, you know, like the trough of the down part of the, our transformation, like just everything was You're going not wrong. You're talking about your... No, I'm not talking rock. about crying on a rock. There's another <laughs> one. There's another formative experience um, that I was driving to the church um, one day and I just like, everything was going terrible and just like you know, everyone hated me and everyone else I was letting down, right? Like I just was, I just was, I mean, I don't want to brag or anything, but I can throw an epic pity party and Elijah has nothing on me. And so I'm driving to the church on Harris Boulevard and I'm sitting at a red light and for some reason I'm so desperate that I'm like paying attention to my surroundings. And I look up and there are these big, like there's a lot of like I don't know, hawks or buzzards or like big birds around here. Not like big bird. We might talk about him later, but like big birds, big black birds. And I was watching these birds fly and they are like, when they get started, they just do like a couple like really deep pumps mm -hmm. of their wings and then they catch an air current and yeah. glide. Yeah. And I really in that moment experienced this revelation from the Lord that I was doing ministry the whole time, like just pumping my wings. Right. And you can do that. Like you have the strength to do that until you, no until you don't. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And that's not how you're meant to fly. Right. Like you, there is a time of like just effort, but then you catch a current and you glide. And so for the majority of the time that these birds are up there, like they are barely expending any energy because they were built for it. And because they are on a current and they're just gliding. And I realized in that moment, like, okay, I'm doing it wrong because it's all pump and no glide. And I think I was approaching this opportunity, this, this event, this women's ministry, which I, I, I really wanted us to have a chance to come together because we hadn't been together face to face in community for so long. And I knew it was really important, but it was just like, oh, one more thing. And I was getting ready to just like pump it out until I talked to Lindsay and realized like, oh, there's another way to do this that is objectively better and more faithful and holier and gives more room for the Holy Spirit. And it just was this really um, beautiful morning um, where people were laying foundations, like biblical, like, like Jesus foundations for connecting to one another, which is why, why, what we believe has drawn us all together. And also I really, I wasn't ministering to anyone. I 
was ministered to in all of the the um, the things that we did together that day. I mean, just so deeply. We did worship together, and we studied scripture together, and we did a service project together, and we did this creating thing based on Jeremiah and the clay, and we and and then they were all amazing. And the one that particularly ministered to me is, you know, I struggle in my prayer life. I struggle because inside my brain are 17 angry monkeys. And when I stop, they just start to fight with each other. And, um, and my friend Zayil Caravaggio created this, um, prayer activity where she made prayer beads for all of us and taught us how to pray with, with beads where like we had a, um, she actually I have it right here, like a sheet of paper and you, you hold a bead and there's a thing that you say, and then you hold each bead and, you know, sit with repeating these phrases, like just helps you be present to God. I mean, she was like, again, like she's, she's this very deep, mature Christian and talking about like, this is not a, this isn't a talisman. There's no power in this. These are just beads tied on a string. But what they can help you to do is be present in your praying and it can help guide you out of the kind of ruts that you get stuck in, which for some people, they don't get stuck in ruts, but I do um, and, and can help me get out of my interior dialogue and, and into centering on the thoughts of Jesus instead of the thoughts of Kate. And anyway, it just, you know, in these like week and a half since this has happened, it's just been such a great gift to have this new way of being with God outside of my doing for God. And just that I'm just in awe of how right that morning was and how much sort of mutual love and teaching and learning, like how that was the body of Christ, that there's not one person leading and one person, you know, other people following. It's all of us pouring into each other, being filled by each other, being um, healed by one another. It just was really wonderful. And I'm just still sitting with that experience and um, giving thanks to God for it. And so that's what I'm saying. And one of the things I'm becoming more and more aware of is how we are trained to create consumers of religious yeah. goods. And um, we so easily and quickly fall into that, you know, with a retreat, what my job is to prepare teaching, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Or to um, hire someone. Like in other communities, someone. they'd That's say, right. like, well, let's hire someone to come in and be mm-hmm. the guru. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But we really have created a, a generation, if not more than one generation, of religious consumers. And it's really... Um, both hard and beautiful uh, when you break out of that. Um, Right. And I think so much of our model for pastoring, I mean, certainly when we were in seminary and I think for a while is we've been trying to appear legitimate as legitimate professionals in the eyes of the culture. So we've mm -hmm. modeled ourselves after professors, after doctors, after therapists. And those are very like, you know, you, you, they're very unidirectional, right? There's no mutuality in your relationship with your therapist. And and there's very little mutual discovery in the physician-patient relationship, which a lot of the medical professionals are saying like, whoa, we've messed up because we don't listen to our patients. We don't, you know, anyway, whatever. So I, but I just see that so much in that, that therapist model, that psychiatrist model, that professor model, it doesn't work for the 
community of faith. It's not supposed to work that way. That's not, you know, that's not the model. We're not professionals. So do you see the pandemic helping or harming? Well, I mean, I think in the sense that everything was broken apart, I think that if we can stop woeing, woe is meing, and really say, okay, here's where we are, God. And what we know for sure is you are still good and you are still faithful. So how can we meet you in the ruins of what we, you know, built and what we feel entitled to? And how can we just say, um, there is no going back and, and this is a wilderness time. And how can we re, um, re, ignite our passion to say our eyes are on you god and so do you think online ministry facilitates the kind of experience you had at this retreat or does it um continue to create consumers who sit in front of a screen i don't you know i don't think it's i don't think that the method the the context is what matters i think you know you're building culture whether you're building it online we're in person and um, we're going to have to be creative about thinking how we engage. But like, you know, we, we are so fortunate that we have these tools like zoom and Google meets and whatever. And we've done small groups over zoom and we've done, and the reality is for all of their disadvantages, there are advantages in terms of people being able to connect and participate who couldn't have before. And so again, I just think we, in the midst of this ruin, God is doing a new thing. And and we are exposed to the fact of like, oh, this should not have knocked us as far back as it did. And so what we know is that we appeared to be healthier than we actually were. And it's devastating to see the problem. But also, um, if, if we really want to be well, then seeing the problem and acknowledging the problem is, is the first step to that. So um, I mean, I will always believe, I, I mean, obviously the incarnation, like the embodiedness of Christian faith, there's always going to be a necessity to gather together in community. That's always going to be valuable always. And, you know, the entire, almost the entire new Testament is made up of documents that were created because people could not gather together in person. Right. So just, letters. right. So to mm-hmm. just to give ourselves a pass and say like, well, we'll just sort of tread water until we can gather again in the way that we used to gather again, like that's just not faithful. There, There's ministry to be done here and now. And there's no circumstance that we are up against that our others before us haven't, you know, had challenges that maybe looked different, but were even more daunting. And what we know is that God works best in our limitedness. And so I, I do think, I mean, I don't, we don't need to beat ourselves up and we don't need to be filled with shame, but like, is it possible to be faithful right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's possible to be faithful. We might not get what we want. Um, and we might not be received or celebrated in the way that we think it deserves to be, but those are, those are idols that need to be exposed in us. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. And I think for a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, that we, we want to read about, um, you know, how we can be more productive and how we can be more disciplined. And Lord knows I need to be more disciplined, but also, you know, we're doing this um, emotionally healthy discipleship thing right now with our people, which is really good. And one of the main points he talks about 
in a culture with, in a healthy culture of discipleship is people discover the gifts of limits and loss, the gifts and limits and loss. And so I think, you know, in, instead of, and again, gratefully to my friend, Lindsay, who, you know, I didn't shame me or blame me, but as I was sort of saying like, oh, how am I going to do one more thing? And said like, well, what if you don't have to do one more thing? Like, what if your limit isn't holding the congregation back? What if your limit is actually creating a context wherein people in the church get to grow in their gifts and get to be seen as um, co-laborers in the vineyard, which is true. And, um, and so I, I, you know, it's just, it, I think that that is what we, what we have to sort of accept as a foundational principle that there's a way to be faithful in the circumstance. And so my job is to discover it and not to need it to look a particular way. Um, but, but there's a way to be faithful in this season and, and to live in the reality of where we are um, and to have hope that God will bring something good out of it for the future. So what's astonishing you? Are you familiar with the song um, by Seal um, that was no. popular? You, you don't know? <laughs> you know Seal. Um, I know he was married a few, to Heidi. A few, yes, that's right. A, a few years ago, um, um, Kiss from a Rose. No. You don't know that song? I mean, maybe I'd know it if I heard it, but I don't. Will you sing it to me? No, I will not <laughs> sing that song. Like, you really don't know that song? No, you're going to have to give me more than that. I don't Holy know the titles cow. of songs. I like, don't listen to music. Wow. Okay. So, um, I really like that song. I don't li- listen to it often, but, you know, a few years ago, it, I think it won a Grammy or something, but... um. Yesterday, I was just in a mood. It's It's got these strange uh, kind of minor chords. And if you read the lyrics, they're they're beautiful. But then you you leave the song going, I have no idea what this means. Um, and so I I'm was... I'm looking up the lyrics right now. <laughs> I was listening to this song. And yesterday, I took my child to school. And it was just kind of in a not really a funk, but just needed, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I got into bed and... Wait, I'm just, okay, can I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just pulled it up and the first lyrics are, ba-da-da, ba-da-da-da-da-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da-da-da-da, ba-da-da. So that's just funny that you're like, these lyrics are so beautiful. And then the first screen is literally... That's just a little humming at the beginning. I'm sorry. Okay. So I was... I had it on loop um, laying down yesterday morning. I was just playing the song over and over and over again. And um, oh, bless your little I know, emo heart. I was just, I was, I was in a, a bit, I was feeling a bit place. melancholy. I, I was feeling, because me- this song is about, there's a lot of grayness. Anyway, yeah. so. Okay. So I, I then listened to this music expert who was breaking down the song. And saying how musically wonderful it is, the you know different chords, and he was using all kinds of music terms. That I have no idea what he's talking about: progressions and intervals, and you know minor chords, and um, and he was isolating instruments and saying, "Listen to this, listen to that voice, listen to this oboe and uh, these strings," and um, and it really is a beautiful song. And um, he, he, this, this guy was talking about, you know, it's really genius, especially for pop music. You don't hear 
um, and find a lot of pop music that has this kind of complexity. And so in the middle of this video, he actually interviews Seal. He has him like on a Skype call or something. And he asked the question, um, you know, how did you get to such a complex, how did you write this complex song? And it's, it's genius, it's brilliant, it's this, it's that. And Seal said, um, honestly, I didn't know I couldn't do it. I didn't know I couldn't yeah. do what I did. I was just playing around with some melodies, playing around with lyrics and... I, it, it didn't take a long time to write the song. I was just having fun, and this mm -hmm. is what came out. Mm -hmm. And in my state of melancholy, <laughs> I, I was just captivated by that because I'm wired <laughs> to be a very, um, I'm a rule conscious, yeah. a rule following kind of guy. I, um, you know, submitting to authority is not a problem for me. I play by the rules. I mean, that's, that, I'm a very agreeable personality. So when he said, I, I didn't know I couldn't do that, <laughs> what, what struck me was how I limit myself both in life and in ministry because I have these boundaries in place. Yeah. And I play within the lines, the rules of these in many cases, self-imposed boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I just started to ask myself, what What if, what if I played around, like he said, I, I was just playing around with the melodies, having fun, and this brilliant thing came out, and what if I did that? Um, and I also, I also started thinking about this dear woman uh, in uh, the Dorita Church family who a number of months ago said to me, I love you and I think your ministry is great, but I also know there is so much more in you that you're not letting out. And mm -hmm. she's exactly right. Um, I had a conversation with our elder board, our session, uh, just two weeks ago. And in a moment of vulnerability, I said, thus far in my five years with you, I have one major regret. And that is when I came in, I felt an impulse to do um, healing ministry. I wanted to put a sign out front, first Monday, come. I just want to pray for people in the community. And I started asking members of the church about it. And folks said, no, that sounds too Pentecostal. That's not what we do. And I didn't do it. I pulled mm -hmm. way back and just kind of held it in. And I really should have leaned into it. And again, it's this, this um, willingness to work within, live within these boundaries that really limit me. And so I'm just astonished um, just to have a moment of clarity about how much I limit myself. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because it, it's finding that right spot, the, you know, just the right amount of tension in the relationships. Because on the one hand, we there is a structure, there are absolutes, and, and there is an element in the life of faith where submission 
is important, but it's submission to God. But then also, of course, we don't want to worship our own preferences and agenda as God. And so one of the ways that we discern where God is, is by, you know, submitting to some human institution, some tradition, some institutions, some, um, you know, theologies and doctrines that have been handing down and uh, over the generations. And that is all to the good. And also, um, we, I mean, and the music thing is a really interesting, um, way is a really interesting metaphor to think about that because as someone who suffered and endured an undergraduate music degree, I mean, one of the things you learn about, um, is, you know, when you study music theory and Western music theory, there are just certain chord progressions. There's just rules that you have to follow. And like, where do they come from? Like the ether, right? There's just a rule like, so a one, four, five chord progression, or you can do a one, four, seven, five, or just, there's these rules, but then the whole study of music history is about how people broke those rules in particular ways that were hailed as genius. And when you, when you live solely within those rules, it's, you know, it's pedantic. And I think, you know, the, the implication is how do we both receive the gifts and the manifestation of God in our contemporary community and in the historic community and also remain open to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that continually reveals to us um, just the the limits and flaws of these um, of what we receive and have the courage to do what we will be perceived as breaking or damaging and really playing around with this, respectability notion, right? That we, we want both to serve our communities and we need to be affirmed by them because if your community is not following you, you're just, you know, taking a walk. you're just taking a walk. And so on the one hand, when your community says like, no, like when do you hear the community say no? And you have the wisdom to listen and say like, okay, I'm wrong or not yet. Or, or when do you also have the listen, the wisdom to say, I know this makes you uncomfortable, but I also know that it's faithful. And part of my, um, part of being faithful to you as a leader is to make you uncomfortable sometimes and, and to, to be ahead of you and to, and I mean, that's just a really hard thing, tension to live with, to, to, we talk about this all the time, like to both really love the people you're serving and, and to be so willing to serve them faithfully in that a way you that will, makes you misunderstood. Right. We'll make you misunderstood. We'll make you re- rejected. We'll make people really disappointed in you and, and to be willing to be willing to risk the relationship, to have the relationship. And that, that's just a really hard thing. And I think especially in the context of our denomination right now, which is dying and for um, followers of Jesus Christ, death is not, to be avoided and it's not terrifying, but it's also not to be resigned and we're not to be resigned to it. And so to be able to say like, what, where's the Lord leading us right now? And we were saying this on the walk, like some of our death 
is a product of deep human unfaithfulness, but that's not a them problem. It's an us problem. And so how, how can we bear witness to, you know, this is, this is where we see our own unfaithfulness. And this is where we think the Lord is leading us. And here's what we're for. And here's, here's why we're risking loss and failure. Um, but yeah, I definitely think for, you know, it's the pastors who are least, I think, um, likely to say, I have a vision or I, you know, are, are the ones who need to do it the most. Mm-hmm. And so I think for you to walk into that community and say, Hey, I know I'm new and I know this is a cross ethnic appointment. And I know that I, I want to care for you and I want to still be here in five years and also have to be me and having a structure around you that, I mean, I, we talk about this a lot too. I think in our denomination and in most mainline denominations, people have an unhealthy expectation that sometimes the pastor is the cruise director or the concierge and you come and do the things that we want you to do that we don't want to do ourselves. And so to be able to say, am I, am I here to serve you? Because we are consumers. We're consumers. And so am I here to serve you? Yes. Am I accountable to you? Yes. But I'm also here to lead. And this is a spiritual community and we are about spiritual things. And the biblical record is absolutely clear that we are called to pray for healing and that we are expectant that God's glory will be manifested in ways that transcend the, what we label as natural. And, you know, we, to say that's not appropriate in this place, it's, it's labeling that inappropriate. That is the problem, not the desire to invite the community in and say, let me pray for healing. That's our, that's our work. Um, But I think like what's beautiful about that is in the context of meeting with your leaders and being vulnerable and saying, not you were wrong because you stopped me, but I was wrong because I didn't walk in the fullness of my anointing and my calling in this community. And I'm grieving that. And also I can't change it, but here's, you know, here's how I want us to move forward in the future. And that's really beautiful. Yeah, All because of a seal song. Go listen to that song. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you thinking about? Um, well, I am thinking, I, I'm, I'm still listening to that Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which, um, is, it, it, it's kind of a, (laughs) I make it a point not to look at car accidents when I drive past them on the road, but I, that is definitely part of the impulse to keep listening to this podcast. Um, but what I was saying to you, on the walk. Um, so cliff notes, Mars Hill was a very big, very, um, successful as the world design, as the world defines success, mega church, multi-site, multi-site in Seattle, Washington. And it was explicitly and gleefully patriarchal. And the head of that church was not Jesus was Mark Driscoll. And he just had a huge personality and, and real, um, I mean, as we all do, he, he had just real serious human flaws and he had no accountability. And so they just, you know, he, he was a product of the system of people who were believing that God always looks like bigger, richer, better. Um, anyway, and it all imploded a couple of years ago. And so now there's a 
podcast that produced by Christianity Today, which is kind of doing an autopsy of that community. And it's really fascinating. And it is definitely a, I I mean, a conservative, I'd say Christianity Today is conservative. um, And which you know, it doesn't make it less faithful than those I would call liberal, right about some things, wrong about some things, human. Um, and, and they're doing an autopsy of Mars Hill. And so it's very interesting to to listen to that as a, as a mainliner from a more progressive side of the body of Christ, because just a lot of their problems aren't our problems, um, at least on the surface. And, um, what is interesting and, and somebody had to point this out to me, um, my friend, um, Diane, um, sent me a, an article about the podcast and they were pointing out like, isn't it interesting that it's basically all men talking about what went wrong at this church, but not talking about the naming the fact that there were only men sitting around the table. And so when it spun quote out of control, <laughs> <laughs> and started becoming really abusive and aggressive and explicitly, you know, demonically misogynistic. Now you have a lot of men doing the autopsy and sort of talking about like, well, when did it actually go too far without sort of saying, hey, this initial construct that only white men get should be in charge. And this, I mean, they were not explicitly racist, but they were factual. I mean, I don't know. It's it's Portland. <laughs> Um, but just not, not Seattle, but not looking at the, the assumptions of the community and the theological problems with those. And, and basically everybody in the podcast seems to be, and it's not over yet, but seems to be saying like the problem was this guy and the problem was all of us for condoning this guy, but the problem wasn't the system and the problem wasn't the values. It's just that they got too extreme. And it's just interesting for me to hear this as a woman and a woman in ministry and just be like, you know, the idea that women should have this and his lovely wife role, like that's not up for debate. Like it's fine to see men as the ontological ideal of humanity and women playing a supporting role. And that's all fine as long as you respect the women and provide for them better. But there's no question of whether this hierarchy is um, reflective of the culture of the kingdom of God, because the assumption is, oh, it is. Like, we just need to do it better, but there's nothing wrong. And I would say, like, no, what's wrong is that your your picture of the kingdom of God is actually the empire. And you're trying to put a Jesus, like, scrim on the top, and it doesn't work. And you, because you're not interested in the mutual submission and radical oneness and vulnerability that life with Jesus really calls us to. And you're not interested in letting go of the power and authority that the culture gives you in order to create a radically different alternative to life here in America. And, and all I'm saying is listening to that as a woman gives me, I think an insight of how, how frustrating it must be sometimes as a person of color to listen to white people talk about systemic racism, just because the people in the podcast are just so interested in like talking about what's wrong with Mark and kind of how they were in it. But like, 
they didn't really do the bad stuff and it wasn't really their fault and they were victimized by it too and they're one of the good guys and just sort of not really interested in listening to the voices of people who were excluded or most wounded. And, and even the women, when they are interviewed, like they're not challenging the system either. They're just sort of saying like, the, 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 these guys were really mean to me and I didn't deserve what happened to me, but also not questioning that this whole tree is producing really unhealthy fruit. And I just recognize like how often for me as a white person, it, I, I need how difficult it is for me to listen to people of color, give bear witness to how fundamentally death dealing the institutions that are comfortable to me are to them. And to just be able to listen to that and not make excuses and not try to say, okay, but it's not all that bad. Or what about this or that? And, and to say like, no, it, it, it is this bad for you, which means in the kingdom of God, it's that bad for me too, because I cannot be flourishing if you are withering on the vine, because that's not shalom. And so being able to say, we need something radically different um, for, for all of our sakes. And that's not me as a white person being magnanimous or being a savior. That's me saying like, this system is killing all of us, but you're the expert, not me on how it needs to be redesigned. And, and, and I need to not dominate this conversation because I can't see the depths of the harm because I wasn't the primary person harmed by it. And so it's just helpful for me to listen and be so mad <laughs> that they're kind of talking all around the problem and then be like, oh, well, I wonder what that's like when, when it's not really so much about gender, but is about um, race and ethnicity and, and how do I want to show up in those conversations so that I'm not doing to other people what I feel is being done to me in this conversation. So that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Well, while you were talking, I got this image, this picture in my head of these men riding a tiger called patriarchy. Mark is in the front. And they are fine riding this tiger as long as the tiger is harming others out there. But when the tiger turns and hurts them, well, now there's a problem. Not to, but, but it's, it's not the tiger that they're pointing at. It's the, the person at the front, Mark, so let's get rid of Mark. Let's not get rid of the tiger. Let's right. not get rid of this thing that we're all riding right. and benefiting from. Right. Because it's not only about gender. It's about, I mean, what um, uh, Pete Scazzaro would say is successism, mm -hmm. right? Like we need the church to look successful. And so we need to do what we need to do in order to make it look attractive to the world, mm -hmm. even though it's not supposed to look attractive it's to the world. also about power. Yeah. Yeah. About violence. Yeah. It's about explicitly about violence. Yes. I mean, one of the things and, and I remember um, there's a book that Mark wrote called Confessions of Oh, I can't remember the the whole title, but basically 
he was writing about growing a megachurch as a reformed, in terms of his theological yeah. camp, a reformed pastor, which you don't have a lot of reformed megachurches. And I remember reading this book and then listening uh, to him. And personally, I was struck by the um, like references to MMA fighting. I'm like, wait, wait, what is this? Like, yeah. that's not my world. It's not my thing. And I was like, oh, I can see how there, there's a culture here that's that's emerging. Like, they are totally embracing this world of MMA fighting because in, yeah. they see it in terms of um, if you're going to be strong in Jesus, it looks like an MMA fighter. Right. Well, I mean, it's trying to appropriate toxic masculinity for the gospel, and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't. Jesus was not that kind of a human and Jesus did show up in a male body, and he was not that kind of man. He did not kick ass. He got his ass kicked. Someone, and I mean, I know that that's strong language, mm-hmm. and it's language that makes everyone uncomfortable, but I'm I'm actually really okay with that. Because if you're uncomfortable hearing me say, Jesus got his ass kicked, then you are uncomfortable. You don't understand the crucifixion. Because that is the scandal. Like when when Paul talks about the this cross is a scandal, we're like, yeah, yeah, the cross is a scandal. No, like saying those words that I just said, like I'm like, oh, that's gonna get me in trouble because people are gonna say that's a disrespectful, dishonoring way to talk about Jesus. And that is Paul's point: is that to say that Jesus, you know, I preach nothing among you but Jesus and Him crucified. crucified. It is exactly like saying you know, using very explicit language about somebody getting beaten up in a fight. And you would say like, no, you can't, you, you, you that's inglorious. But the point is, no, it's not. This is Jesus, how Jesus is overturning the system of kill or be killed by saying, I refuse. I mean, the end doesn't justify the means ever. It's like, you know, there's a, there's an American aircraft nuclear submarine called, Corpus Christi. I mean, like that in our country, it it does not strike anybody as absurd to have a weapon of mass destruction and literally name it the body of Christ. And we don't see any problem with that. When the reality is like that is blasphemy. That's blasphemous. And that, but we don't understand it because we've appropriated Jesus into respectability and power and empire. And so... And someone's going to going to reference right now. I know someone is listening to this podcast saying out loud, but, but, but Jesus went to the temple and overturned the the tables of the money changers and threw them out. He did that one time in his ministry. And, but for the, if, if you look well, back at his ministry, it's my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And it's also, let the children come to me. It's and he walked into a place of overwhelming power unarmed yeah. and did a thing that put himself at risk. He didn't plant dynamite in there and blow it up. He didn't have right. a, a smart bomb come and take it out. Like Jesus didn't do, he did disturbance. Mm-hmm. He did not do destruction. And we ironically will do exactly the opposite. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable talking about war, but we will absolutely deploy a smart bomb to take out civilians in Pakistan. Um, And 
you know, it would be, it's unseemly to talk about it. That's disrespectful to veterans, but it's not unseemly to do it. So we will destroy, but we won't discomfort. And Jesus was exactly, mm. exactly the opposite. So, um, but we don't understand that we cannot have the kingdom of God and the gifts of this culture. You can't have them both. So you've got to choose. Are you going to gain the world and lose your soul or save your soul and lose the world? That is still true. So our churches need to be growing. They need to be changing lives. There needs to be fruit of transformation and people coming alive in Christ. But I don't know that they need to be big. I mean, it's okay if they are, and they certainly shouldn't be closed and exclusive and like country clubs. But this idea that people won't, I mean, and this is, I was listening to an interview that I mean, whatever, we don't need to talk about Mark Driscoll anymore, but I mean, his, well, but it sounds like we're saying beyond Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill church that for all of us, especially those of us who are church leaders, we need to examine ourselves because in some way we are probably accommodating the culture right. in a way that we think is advancing the gospel, but it's really destructive and selling out the gospel. It's the very opposite right. of what the gospel right. is. Right, right. And to recognize that whatever we can see clearly in Mark Driscoll is still at work in us. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that's, you know, because the reality is like the whole framing of that podcast is who killed Mars Church? It's we. And on the one hand, I'd be like, buddy, I didn't kill Mars Church, right? Like, don't lay that on me. And on the other hand, like I do get that it's right to say one person is not the problem and to ask a bigger question is appropriate. And to say, I mean, like this is just what, what is helpful that you learn from more from the culture than from the church is who is not at this table and how is their absence wounding us all? And we who have Paul saying, you know, the hand cannot say to the eye, I am no part of you. Like we should know that better than the culture and we don't. We think that there are some tables of power that are best populated by one kind of person and that that kind of person can do good for all the other kinds of people. And that's exactly explicitly the theology of patriarchy, right? Like men need to be on top. And then when men are good and then they can take care of, like yes. Josh Hawley just said that, like people have been telling everyone that masculinity is bad. And that's why men are now turning to pornography and video games. And it's your fault, <laughs> you uppity ladies. And the reality is, no, the problem is we need to be sitting around tables together because we are incomplete and diseased without one another. The pro men are not bad, but I mean, but men cannot lead alone without women and they cannot live in community in a healthy way without being in full healthy relationship with women and all kinds of other people. Um, and so well, like, and without others at the table, we will distort and misunderstand Scripture because we yeah. will come with a certain template. And one of the things that I love about my seminary experience is that from the get-go, they said to us, you're, you're coming to the text with a perspective. Right. Everyone comes to the text with a perspective. And so for men, we come to the text and we see in Genesis um, a word like helper. 
And we said, oh, well, women are supposed to help us, second class, subservient. But then we don't even see that when you get to the Psalms, God is called our help, our helper. But we would never say, oh, God is second class. God exists to serve us. I can't think of the Hebrew word, but I, it's the... It's ever. The, yeah. It's E-B-E-R, ever. And so, like, okay, something is wrong with this. If, if the same word is used, but you interpret it this way here and that way there, no, we're, we're, we're missing something. Well, and I will say we've been talking a lot about gender, and so I do also just want to acknowledge that one of the things that's making a lot of us very uncomfortable right now that we need to not otherize and demonize but just ask ourselves hard questions is there are just lots of people in the world who are saying I do not identify on this binary of male and female Mm. and that provokes strong reactions in many people including me like I can own that it um it makes me feel um it makes me feel uncomfortable it makes me feel like are you saying there's something wrong with me I do identifying as female like what does this mean what does this mean for my children what I mean you know it just all the all those emotions come up but I can sit with that and say also Kate why do you need someone to show up before you in a category right why mm-hmm. is it why is it not okay for you just to see someone as a human without putting the label of male or female on them. Like, what is that about for me? And, and so to be able to say this, um, this way of people discussing their identity makes me uncomfortable. And that's really a me problem because what I see is a human being created in the image of God. And I don't need to understand what it's like in the inside of their head for me to be able to understand that it's my job to take a posture of honor towards them and to advocate for their um, safety and for them to be treated with justice and dignity. Like those are just foundational Christian values. And yes, should be easy for us to should embrace. Should be easier for us than for the larger culture. And, and it's not. And that's because their presence is exposing to us something ugly about the way that Again, I would say empire culture, hierarchical culture has invaded mm-hmm. into the deepest levels of our psyche. And and so we want to pay attention to that, not by... And it's so deep that we can read um, a text like um, in the book of Acts, Philip's um, with interaction the eunuch, yeah. with, the, with the eunuch, right? This sexual minority... Mm-hmm. And just gloss over that and not see the relevance. And to say it doesn't have any relevance to what we're doing right Right. now, right? Mm -hmm. And that then that's just a really interesting thing is to recognize that there are whole huge parts of scripture that we have been taught not to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we're open to the Holy Spirit leading us, you know, God will be faithful to us. But if we are only willing to see what we expect to see, then we are going to remain blind, which is exactly what Jesus said over and over again to the Pharisees. Like, I can help you if you're blind. But if you are blind and you don't know it, then, you know, then this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, what are you, what are you preaching about? Cause I'm not, did you already do your thinking about, what are you thinking about this week? What am I thinking about? Oh, well, I've been thinking oh, about, yeah, um, I've been thinking about, the, you know, some, uh, it's just, it's, it breaks my heart to even really think about this, but some are calling it the brink of, and some are saying it has already started. 
that is a civil war in the country of Ethiopia, which has such a rich spiritual history and just history in general um, on the African continent. Um, but um, basically what's happening is their prime minister, um, Abi Ahmed, is being accused of war crimes. And the irony is that just a few years ago, he received the Nobel Peace Prize because when he became prime minister, he preached peace and inclusion. And he said something like in his Nobel Peace Prize um, address that war is a sign of failure for all involved. And then just recently, he said something like, we will bury the enemy in blood. I mean, that's um, it's so disturbing. And now the government, the Ethiopian government, is blocking humanitarian aid to a northern state, a northern province called, um, I can't think of the name. Um, oh, well, let me, let me see if I can give a little history to see if I can. Um, Is it Tigray? Tigray, that's it, yes. Um, so Ethiopia is, uh, you know, a special country because it was one of the very few African countries uh, not colonized by a European power. But part of the way, one of the ways they escaped that was that they invaded countries around them to create a kind of buffer. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that they treated those groups as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And so Ethiopia has something like 80 different ethnicities. Um, after World War II, um, Eritrea was annexed. Uh, Eritrea uh, was a former European colony, uh, was annexed by Ethiopia. And they began to treat those people as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. But the Atreans said, you're not going to do that. We just came out of being colonized. And so they formed a militia and this, um, this political party and started to push back. In the 70s, they came under the dictatorship of, a, of, of a, a communist dictator who was brutal and bloody and violent. And then these other militias began to pop up, including the one in the uh, state we just named. Um, Tigray. Tigray, that's it. And um, he was finally um, out of office, out of power, I believe, in 1991. And that's when, you know, again, they tried to form this democracy of all these different ethnicities, but still there was tension, um, sometimes violence. And so when um, this new prime minister was elected, he ended the war. Uh, there had been a war with Atreya. There was peace, economic growth. And then... He began to, because he, this, this new prime minister came from this small minority group, he began to um, oppress the citizens of Tigray, mm -hmm. who had been very powerful. And by the time you get to um, the pandemic, mm -hmm. right, he ended the election. He, he said, we're not going to have an election. And the citizens of Tigray said, ah, 
He is just trying to escape an election because he knows he's going to lose. And so they said, okay, we reject the Ethiopian government, and they held their own elections. Yeah. And so the prime minister then cut off uh, funding and aid and resources to those folks. And then they responded to that by taking over a military base within the boundaries of Tigray. And around the time of our election here in the U.S. last year, the prime minister sent a military force. He called it a law and order campaign. Uh, he sent a military force into Tigray. And it's been accused of killing um, innocent civilians, uh, sexual violence, um, bringing people to a place of starvation. And so now the militia in Tigray is advancing toward the capital, Addis Ababa, and they're accused of doing these same yeah. kinds of, yeah. of atrocities. And so the closer they get to the capital, people are saying, okay, this is going to, it's already bad. Yeah. But it's going to erupt in a real bloodbath. And that's where we are. And they are determined to get to the Capitol to remove the prime minister. And the prime minister is telling uh, the citizens of the Capitol, hey, know who your neighbors are. Get ready. Get your gun. Get ready for a fight. And somebody has to talk these groups down from this horrible ledge that they're on. And so that that's where things are. They're on the edge of a real thing. Things are already violent and bloody. But it has the potential to get worse. Well, and it, yeah, and I think what is really important to, for us to understand is this is the kind of thing that Paul was talking about when he said our enemies aren't flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And so the reality is um, that you know um, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia and you know Aung San Suu Kyi in um, um, why is against the Uyghurs in China. Right. Well, no, no, not no, China, no. but She's, um, um, they they have two two names: the Myanmar, Myanmar and Burma. Right, and that you know she's another world leader who was oppressed for a very long time by the dominant party, was awarded the no, the Nobel Peace Prize, a human rights activist, and now is the prime minister and is now accused of perpetrating the same war crimes against a different. Um, ethnic group, the Uyghurs. And so what we're seeing is this idea that it's not that a certain ethnicity is more, it's not an ethnic thing. It's a, it's a power thing yes. that people in power learn that the ends justify the means to hold on to power and tell themselves stories about that. And so to the extent when people say it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. I mean, if you look at it from that context, you're not wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think for us as believers to be able to say, we want justice and justice is different than vengeance. And so it's not about doing to people what was done to, you know, it, it's not tit for tat. And I think, you know, what the African-American community in this country have, have, have been really clear about that all along is that we're not interested in vengeance against white people. And we're not interested in doing to white people what white people have done for us. What we're interested in is 
the full privileges of citizenship and humanity in this country. But, but when the discourse devolves to us and them and enmity and we start calling and this, and this does happen on both sides, although more on one than the other, but we start calling people who follow lies and we start demonizing them and calling them animals and dehumanizing them, then we become the thing that we oppose and we, and, and the enemy of our souls has us right right where he wants us. Well, and we also have to realize and come back to the truth that the humanity of people living in Ethiopia is not somehow different, ontologically different from the humanity of Americans. I mean, for years, those folks have talked about um, rigged elections. Right. For years, not just years, decades, there's been this ethnic tension. And so it is not, I, I am not in any way predicting civil war in this country. That's not what I'm doing here. But I do want to say the fruit of what we see happening in Ethiopia now, you can see some of the root of that. Um, here in terms of our ten- you know, I was listening to um, a country next door to them uh, to their south is, is Kenya and uh, a, a Kenyan commentator uh, was saying um, you know they are politically divided they are ethnically divided they're, they're economically I mean, you, you could have replaced Ethiopia with what people are saying about things in this country right now and the reality is if we will live as if the gospel is true, then we will be able to follow the narrow way home in that we will be known as followers of Jesus, not by our doctrine, not even by our truth, but by how we love our enemies, right? So the the trick is to be able to say not both sides are equally valid, but to be able to say, this is the truth that we have, not as a product of our our superiority, but as a pure gift of the grace of God. And we use this truth not as a weapon, but to rescue our brothers and sisters. And our brothers and sisters are not the problem. Um, The lie is the problem. And so we have to refuse to demonize even as we are demonized. Um, and, and, And that's the real trick is to stay engaged in conversation without saying, oh, everything you think and everything I think are interchangeable and morally equivalent because there's not, there is an objective truth, but we have to resist the temptation of thinking that because we are right, we are justified in doing unrighteous things. And before actions happen, they are, they are emotions and they are thoughts and they are ideas. And so we have to deeply resist, um, the, um, wishing for, praying for, and celebrating the destruction of our enemies. And, you know, Relevant Magazine just posted a clip this morning of a, a community, of a congregation sitting in pews for a political ra- rally, which is already problematic, chanting, let's go Brandon, over and over again. When let's go Brandon is um, currently a stand-in for F. Joe Biden, right? And so when you have a community of Christians who are drawn together, not by their love for the Lord, and certainly not by their love for their enemies, but drawn together in a sanctuary to curse the one they perceive to be their enemies, like we have lost the spiritual battle. But you're never as dangerous you know, when you know that you've 
lost, you can be helped. But when you think that you are worshiping Jesus, when you're actually serving the Antichrist who would sow division and hatred and enmity, like that's, that's really, really dangerous. And, and we cannot say, oh, it's a them problem. It's, it's an us problem. Absolutely. It's a human problem. And we have to understand that if we have truth, it's because God has graciously gifted it to us so that we can serve our brothers and sisters and lay down our lives for them. And if we, and if we don't have truth, you know, the only way we're going to know that is if our brothers and sisters come and love us and serve us and reveal truth to us. So we, we have to understand that if, if you are convinced that you have truth, then that means that you have a moral obligation to be in relationship with those who, who do not have it. And you can't yeah. say you're a demon, you're an animal, you're, you're not human, and then say, why don't I have more influence over you? <laughs> you can't. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Okay. And, and Ethiopia uh, is deeply Christian nation. I mean, it, it is a, um, whenever I read about Christianity uh, there in Ethiopia, I mean, it's just beautiful and rich and um, the icons are uh, lovely. And, and it goes back well before, centuries before um, um, the transatlantic slave trade. Right. I mean, uh, last thing I'll, I'll say about that whole situation is that, you know, it, of course it's disturbing as a follower of Jesus, but also, you know, as a as a um, African living in the uh, diaspora, um, you know, there's so many people who've been working to change the narrative of the continent, um, both in the diaspora and those on the continent, um, because we hear here in the West, so much about war and violence and starvation on the continent and miss um, the, the beauty and uh, the successes of, of, of that continent. And I am so concerned that situations like Ethiopia, just making it ripe for um, other industrialized superpowers to recolonize the continent um, because there are so many uh, resources. Most of the resources that are, you know, powering our cell phones, most of the, the minerals that we use every day, for example, again, our cell phones, they're coming from the continent. And so there, I think there's just a number of nations that are just looking to recolonize and this pay this kind of thing paves the way well it's all i mean it's all the economy stupid like yeah. the love yeah. of money truly yeah. is the root of all yeah. evil and yeah. and all of these systems of human oppression and domination have always been at their root economic systems that mm -hmm. have sought ethical and theological masks but have always been about power and money. Yeah. And so we, this is why Jesus talks about power and money more than anything else, which is why the American church only wants to talk about sex because we do not want to sit in judgment over our use of power and money. Wow. Wow. Anyway, we've talked a long time and I'm not preaching this week. So You're not preaching this Hooray. week. Yes. No. Um, Edmund. Preaching the final in the series on Thanksgiving, thanking God for the future the and promises God has yes. made. Yes. Um, and I think we're going to look at Second Chronicles 20, where uh, Israel is being attacked, 
And King Jehoshaphat sends out the singers ahead of the army, and they sing, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And you're going to say, we give thanks to God for the character of God and the promises of God. And then lead the people in that activity. Yep. And go home. Mm -hmm. Everybody grateful and um, including more in their list so that we can win the gratitude challenge. And so that Kate gets to watch all of the Star Wars movies and give a theological analysis. I'm so looking forward to that. So um, we are going to do a little bit of housekeeping today that we've never done before. And one is um, you can, um, if you're still listening to us, <laughs> thanks. I mean, for real. Thanks thank a lot. You. Yeah, no, really. <laughs> we think we think it says a lot about you and very little about us, but um if you are listening and you haven't subscribed to this podcast, y- you could do that, and it would be a-, a gift. It would be a free gift that you could give to us. Yes. <laughs> I think you can like- do that both on iTunes, mm-hmm. and you can subscribe on the uh, SoundCloud website where we post uh, this podcast. And if you review it, that just helps other people find us. Yes. So you can say, I don't, I mean, whatever, hopefully you would say good things, but just review it. That would be great. Um, And if you would like to find out more about um, the ministry, God's ministry at Derrida Presbyterian Church, that's D-E-R-I-T-A pres.org, go to their website, go to their YouTube channel, because you can find a lot of resources that Yolando has put together there, including current and previous sermons. And you can also listen to the Derrida Church podcast on the Podbean um, platform and find uh, the back catalog of Yolanda's sermons. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove Presbyterian Church, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel, which is the Grove Church. I don't know. Look for the tree. <laughs> I don't really know how we did that. Um, it's a problem. And you can check out our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Yolanda was laughing at me, but that's okay. Um, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.